Now, just so you know, the crimes that we are investigating in this episode are some of the most shocking and appalling crimes in the entire Bible. I just want you to be prepared. And we're going to answer two questions today. Why is this even in the Bible? And what can we learn from it? We learn a lot about what happened during the period of the judges and as it relates to what's going on in our culture today. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. In our last episode, we met judge and prophetess Deborah and a woman by the name of Jael, who tent-pegged General Sisera and helped turn the tide against Israel's enemy, King Jabin of Hazor. Following the Bible's account of Deborah, we learn about more judges, whom the Lord sent to rescue Israel, rescuers such as Gibeon, Jephthah, Samson, and others, much less well-known. But after Samson died, detailed in Judges chapter 16, there are no further judges mentioned in this book of the Bible. Yet there are five more chapters. So what are they about? These chapters detail short stories of what was typically going on in the families, in the tribes, among the Levite religious leaders, and with the nation as a whole during the period of the Judges. Four times in these, these five chapters occurs the phrase, In those days Israel had no king. Two times, in both with the first and last occurrence, there is an additional phrase added, Everyone did as he saw fit. Today's episode, involving a religious leader, an old man, and two women, and the sordid events that followed, are detailed in the last three chapters of the book of Judges, chapters 19, 20, and 21. The crime of the religious leader and the old man was appalling. What followed among the men of a town in Israel was pure evil. How the religious leader then responded to that evil led to a politically charged inferno that spread across the entire nation. It almost led to the genocide of an entire tribe in Israel. You see, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. Chapter 19 begins by telling us about a nameless Levite, a religious leader, who lived in a remote area of Ephraim. The fact that the Levite lived in a remote area is significant. You see, when Israel conquered the land of Canaan, 11 of the tribes received a geographical area of their own. But the descendants of Levi, who served as priests and other religious leaders, were assigned to 48 different cities throughout, the, throughout Israel. This Levite should have been living in one of these 48 cities, not out in the boonies. Anyway, the Levite takes a concubine from a family in Bethlehem, located in the tribe of Judah. A concubine was a woman who lived with a man but had a lower status than a wife. 
So what's the difference? Some scholars suggest that a wife brought with her a dowry to the marriage, but a concubine didn't. A concubine relationship could be entered into without the formal ceremonies of marriage as prescribed by the culture. And yet it was a legitimate marriage. A concubine could not leave the marriage or go back to the home of her parents. The Levite's concubine, also nameless, was unfaithful to the Levite. The Hebrew language suggests the unfaithfulness was of a sexual nature. Did she have an affair? Did she engage in prostitution for money? We just don't know. We do know that she chose to leave the Levite and return to her father's house in Bethlehem. Then, after four months, the Levite traveled to Bethlehem to persuade his concubine to come back home. When he arrived in Bethlehem, his concubine brought him into her father's house. The Levite's father-in-law gladly welcomed him. Not something we might expect. The father-in-law actually convinced the Levite to stay a couple of days, which in turn turned into three and then four. Finally, on the afternoon of the fifth day, the Levite told his concubine, we gotta go. So the Levite, his concubine, and his servant left Bethlehem and headed north. Later in the afternoon, they approached the city of Jebus, which would later be known as Jerusalem. From Bethlehem to Jerusalem, it was about five miles. The servant suggested they stop and spend the night. The Levite refused. Jebus was inhabited by Jebusites, not Israelites. So they continued on to the town of Gibeah, which was another six or seven miles north of Jebus. Now just note for now that Gibeah was a town in the tribe of Benjamin. It's significant. So they entered Gibeah and went to the city square. Now do you remember from our last episode when we talked about the law of hospitality? General Sisera was welcomed into Heber and Jael's tent because they shared a treaty. In ancient cultures, that meant that Jael was guaranteeing Sisera's safety and well-being. Now, we also saw how Jael set aside the law of hospitality to carry out the Lord's plan to save his people. Well, that law of hospitality applied also to visitors who came into a town square. Town residents were to take traveling visitors into their own homes and offer them food, shelter, and even feed their animals. An old man came into the town square from working out in the fields. He asked the Levite where he was from. When the old man learned that the Levite was from his own hometown area in the hill country of Ephraim, he invited them to his home. Initially, the Levite indicated they'd just stay in the town square, but the old man convinced them to come to his house. The old man fed the donkeys, washed the feet of his visitors, and gave them something to eat and drink. The law of hospitality was at work. But then something tragic happened. A group of men from Gibeah, described as wicked men, came pounding on the old man's front door. What did they want? What they wanted was the old man to send out the Levites so that they could really get to know his house guests better which was another way of saying, we want to use him for our own sexual pleasure. 
Now, I'm going to read the Bible's account of this so that you hear it just as the Bible says it. Here we go. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, talking about the Levite, took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. Now the old man correctly stated that men having sex with men was a vile and evil thing. But then he went on to offer these local monsters his own virgin daughter and the concubine of his guest? And that wouldn't be vile as well? Apparently, the sexual violation of women was less shameful than that of men, at least from a male perspective. What's worse is that the Levite, a religious leader in Israel, sent his concubine, whom he had just traveled to Bethlehem to convince to come back home, he sent her out the door of the old man's home for the mob to do with as they wanted. Appalling, to say the least. By morning, the concubine had crawled back to the doorstep of the old man's home. When the Levite opened the door in the morning, he found his concubine unresponsive. Does this event remind you of anything? How about the day that two angels, who took on the appearance of men, went to the city of Sodom, where Abraham's nephew, Lot, lived with his family? Lot meant uh, met these two angel men at the city gate and invited them to stay at his home. Initially, the two angels said that they'd just stay in the town square. But eventually, Lot persuaded them to stay at his home. That evening, a group of men, both young and old, came to Lot's house demanding that he send out his two guests so they, again, could get to know them better. Lot went out of his house and refused their request again in keeping with the law of hospitality. But sadly, Lot offered his two daughters to the group of men. Now what's different in the two accounts is that the angels pulled Lot back into the house, and when the mob was about to break down the door, the angels blinded the group of men so they couldn't find the door. Although Lot was willing to give his two daughters to the mob, his daughters were spared by the angels' action. The point of the story of the old man and the Levite and the men of Gibeah is that Israel, during the time of the judges, had essentially become Sodom. In Israel, during the period of the judges, there was a culture of lawlessness, violence, and death. As this story demonstrates, this culture of violence and death was even found among the religious leaders of the day. That's the reason this story, appalling as it is, is in the Bible. It demonstrates how, when people walk away from being obedient to the Lord God, evil will soon dominate their lives and their culture, even among its religious leaders. Back to the story 
and sadly there is more evil to come. When the Levite opened the door of the old man's house and found his concubine unresponsive, he put her on his donkey and headed home to the hill country of Ephraim. If the concubine wasn't already dead on the doorstep, she would be by the time the Levite got home. Again, from the biblical text, when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into twelve parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. The Levite butchered his concubine and sent her body parts throughout the land. It was done to create a reaction, and it got a reaction. People throughout Israel were shocked and appalled. Nothing like this had ever been done before. But what the Levite had done also demonstrated how callous and wicked the nation had become, including the Levite himself. In Israel, as well as throughout the Middle East, the proper burial of a deceased person was a spiritual norm and expectation. According to the Lord's law given on Mount Sinai, the people of Israel were required to bury even the dead bodies of criminals. The way the Levite treated the body of his concubine showed shameless disregard for the law of the Lord. The result of the Levite's ghoulish gifts to the tribes of Israel was that representatives from all the tribes, except Benjamin, gathered to determine what they should do. This gathering took place at Mizpah, a town located about five miles north of Gibeah. At this gathering, the tribal representatives wanted to know how this awful thing happened. So the Levite testified. Now, I'm going to read what he said. And as I do, ask yourself, what didn't he say, or what should have he said? Here's his words. I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house intending to kill me. They raped my concubine, and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance, because they committed this lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. So what's your reaction to the Levite's testimony? You know, I think he shared the basic facts of what happened, but he did so in a misleading and selective way. So what didn't he say? He didn't mention that the old man, in a self-serving manner, had offered up his own virgin daughter as well as the Levite's concubine. He didn't mention that he had pushed his own concubine out of the house to be used and abused by these men. The Levite took no responsibility for what happened. There was no confession of what he had done or not done. He correctly identified the wrong done by the men of Gibeah, but took no accountability for his own actions. It was another example of the Levite, a religious leader, being morally bankrupt. Upon hearing the Levite's testimony, the representatives at the Mizpah assembly unanimously decided that the men who raped and murdered the concubine needed to be put to death. That would be justice. The coalition of the 11 tribes put together a fighting force of 400,000 men. 
The coalition sent men among the people of Benjamin to turn over the guilty parties. The tribe of Benjamin chose to defend the men of Gibeah, and they showed their hand by raising a rebel force of 26,000 soldiers to defend Gibeah. According to Judges chapter 20, verse 16, there were 700 select soldiers among them who were left-handed. Each of them could sling a stone with amazing accuracy. What happened next is the only bright spot in this sordid story. When the tribe of Benjamin refused to allow justice to be served, the coalition traveled to Bethel, only a few miles away, to inquire of the Lord what they should do. There the leaders inquired, Who of us shall go first to fight against the Benjaminites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. The next morning the coalition headed to Gibeah. On this first day of battle, the coalition suffered heavy losses, 22,000 men. Because of their losses, the leaders inquired of the Lord a second time whether they should go to battle against their brothers. The Lord said yes. On the second day of battle, the coalition's losses were almost as great. 18,000 were killed. So, what's going on here? The Lord told them to go into battle, and they lost 40,000 men in two days. Why? Now, recall when the coalition went throughout the people of Benjamin, demanding the men of Gibeah be turned over to them. What they led with in those conversations was, how in the world could you Benjamin folks let this happen? It revealed the self-righteous moral superiority on the part of the coalition. The Lord wanted to teach them a lesson. For a third time, the leaders asked the Lord if they should continue the fight. This time, however, they fasted and made two offerings to the Lord, a burnt offering and a fellowship offering that signified their total dependence on the Lord. The coalition repented of their arrogance and smugness and put their trust in the Lord for the victory. The Lord's response this time was, Go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. On the third day of battle, the coalition set an ambush all around Gibeah. One force attacked Gibeah as they had in the previous two days and drew out the Benjaminites from the city. The Benjamin forces were beginning to have success once again. But then the coalition force retreated with the Benjaminite army in hot pursuit. While this battle was going on, the ambush of the city took place by 10,000 crack coalition forces. They set fire to the city. And when the Benjaminites saw the smoke, they turned around and went back to Gibeah, but were caught in between two coalition forces. Long story short, the coalition was victorious. 25,000 Benjaminite soldiers were killed. Only 600 survived by fleeing into the desert. Then the coalition went throughout the tribe of Benjamin, burning every city and killing all of the women, children, and animals. The ruthlessness of the coalition forces against Benjamin was devastating. Just think about this. The rape and murder of one concubine led to the deaths of 65,000 Israel soldiers, plus all the women and children of Benjamin. 
After the slaughter of the people of Benjamin, the coalition leaders essentially asked themselves, what in the world have we done? With no women left in Benjamin, and the fact that all 11 tribes had earlier sworn an oath at Mizpah that they would never give a daughter in marriage to a man from Benjamin, what would they do now to prevent the tribe of Benjamin from becoming extinct? Well, here's what they did. There was one city in all of Israel that had not sent a representative to the gathering in Mizpah. It was the city of Jabesh-Gilead, located on the east side of the Jordan River. Nor did they send any men to fight in the coalition army. Their non-participation said two things. They had given unspoken approval to what the men of Gibeah had done, and they weren't valuing solidarity with the rest of Israel. Both of these were capital offenses. So the coalition sent 12,000 fighting men to Jabesh-Gilead. Everyone in the city was to be put to death except for any women who were virgins. 400 women who had never slept with a man were brought back out of that city to become the wives of the Benjamin men that had survived in the desert. But they were still 200 short. Another plan. There was one of the three festival, uh, religious festivals that Israel celebrated each year. It was held at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. It was likely the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place in the fall of the year. The leaders told the remaining 200 Benjamin males to go to the festival and abduct a young woman who would be dancing at the festival. Uh, abduct one of them and take her home to be your wife. And they did it. Problem solved. After hearing this account, don't you just want to scream at the immorality, the inequality, the selective morality, the unethical approach to solving problems, the rape and murder, the selfishness, the sanctimonious judgment of others, and the list goes on. But that's what happens when people walk away from the Lord God and only do what is right in their own eyes. The only solution to this is personal confession and repentance and trust in the forgiveness that Jesus secured for us on the cross. And of course, it begins with me. As I was preparing this episode, it struck me that in our culture today, we are living in a time so similar to the period of the judges. More and more people are doing what is right in their own eyes, not God's eyes. And our culture is also filled with lawlessness, violence, and death. Also, as I was preparing this episode, it was the week the United States Supreme Court reversed a nearly 50-year-old ruling, Roe v. Wade, which stated that abortion was a constitutional right. The 2022 U.S. Supreme Court determined that the Roe v. Wade ruling was unconstitutional. And from my perspective, there never has been a constitutional right to end another person's life. I think it was Franklin Graham who pointed out that since Roe v. Wade had been the law of the United States, 63 million babies have been murdered before they could ever be born. Human life in our culture seems to be valued less and less. And, and it's not just abortion. 
It's the growing number of murders on our streets and in our communities. It's the intentional lacing of legal and illegal drugs with fentanyl, killing thousands. It's the international trafficking of human beings, especially women. And the list goes on. But there's more. I'm struck by the response to the Supreme Court's decision. There have been elected officials in one branch of the U.S. government who have publicly stated that they're not going to follow the rightful, lawful decision of another branch of government. That's lawlessness. I'm struck by the lawlessness of people who go protesting but then destroy other people's property. Not just currently, but in the past few years. That's criminal. And I'm weary of hearing about judges and district attorneys who won't prosecute crimes or enforce the law. And that's my short list. You know, the lesson to be learned here is that when each person does what is right in his or her own eyes, things will end badly. Just read the book of Judges. Only when we align our lives with the word and will of our God can we expect his blessing and enjoy peace and prosperity. God help us. True Crimes, Bible Edition. In our next episode, we'll investigate the murder of a man for his vineyard. If you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. Be sure to check out our other Time of Grace podcasts. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts or at timeofgrace.org. Thanks for listening and God bless.